Good morning, everyone. I'll introduce myself in a moment. To those of you who don't know me, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for another day that you've given us. We acknowledge that we would not have breath in our lungs this morning if it were not for you. We would not be here at this church building had you not provided it, and we would not be worshiping you in spirit and truth had you not provided your son, Jesus Christ, and given us eyes to see our sin and our need of our Savior. So we praise you this morning, Lord, and I pray that we would get another look at King Jesus this morning as we go through the Gospel of Luke, and we would see his sovereignty over everything, and that we would rest in that, and that we would trust you in that. Um, We cling to you this morning. You are our refuge and strength and a very present help in trouble, and we acknowledge our need for you, and we joyfully and worshipfully bow our knee and submit to your authority and sovereignty over everything. We love you, Lord, and pray you'd Help us continue to worship through the preaching and the hearing of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you know me. If you don't and you're visiting with us this morning, hello and welcome. My name's Chad. I'm the pastor in training here. And as always, and I mean this every time I say it, it's a joy to be up here bringing to you all the word of God. No kidding when you see me doing this, as much as I have to grow, you're seeing a guy doing what he loves most in the whole wide world. So we're continuing our sermon series through Luke, the Gospel of Luke, the Upside Down Kingdom. As you heard read, we're going to be in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 39, titled The Sermon Sovereign Over Storms and Spirits. There's a scene in Genesis chapter 18 that I'm sure most of you are familiar with. Uh, It's a scene with Abraham and Sarah. Abraham, in the scene just before this, has been told by God that he's going to have a son, but Sarah doesn't know this yet, and so a little bit later, he's out at the Oaks by this place that's hard to pronounce, so I'm not going to say it, and he sees these three men coming up, and and he recognizes there's something special about these men. I hope you guys are recognizing the scene. And so he runs out to them, and he even calls them Lord. He says, oh, Lord, if I found favor in your sight, let me, basically let me serve you. Come in to my tent. Let me wash your feet. Let me get you some water, and let me prepare some food for you. And the three men say, sure, we can do that. And so they start going back to the tent, and Abraham runs back and says, Sarah, Get some food ready. We're having some guests, and most likely some very divine guests. And so she starts getting stuff ready, and the men come back to the tent, and one of them, the Lord, the angel of Lord, most likely says, by this time next year, you're going to have a son. And Sarah's in the tent getting the stuff ready, and you know what she does? You remember the story. She laughs. She laughs. And she, remember, I've said this before, like six months ago. It's one of my favorite stories, so sorry to reuse it, but it's so good, and it's going to be helpful for us this morning. She calls herself worn out, and she says, Abraham, my Lord, is an old man. That's kind of awkward, but that's what she says again, not me. And, and then the Lord says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? 
and say those things. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? As we've been going through Luke, it seems like a lot of people, maybe Theophilus, Luke's original audience, he was writing the book for Theophilus, many in the early church and us are probably asking that question about Jesus. We've been seeing some amazing things. Is anything too hard for Jesus? Is there anything he can't do? Maybe you've experienced his help or his power or his authority and sovereignty in some small and some maybe even medium ways, but you're in a trial right now, or someday you're going to be in a trial, that will make you question his ability, or at least make you wonder, is this problem beyond his power to help? As Christians, we know we live in a sinful and fallen world. And our hearts have remaining sin in them. And sin causes chaos. We're going to see that in the two scenes this morning. Sin causes chaos in the world outside and in the world inside, in our hearts. But Jesus is the sovereign king. And there is nothing outside of his control. What we're going to see this morning is that Jesus is sovereign over storms and spirits. He's sovereign over the natural world and the supernatural world. And we can experience calm amidst the chaos by trusting in our sovereign Savior. I hope if you forget everything else on Wednesday morning, you'll remember that we can experience calm amidst the chaos by trusting in our sovereign Savior. At this point, we're a third of the way through Luke, and Dr. Luke has already told us a lot about who Jesus is and what he's done and what he said. I've realized just personally that as we've been preaching through this book, there seems to be a back and forth rhythm in the book of Luke. There's a scene where Luke highlights who Jesus is through his actions, namely he does all these amazing miracles. And then there are sections of Luke where Jesus is teaching. He's saying parables. He's preaching the Sermon on the Plain. So last week we looked at the parable of the soils. Dan titled the sermon, Hear the Word. Jesus teaches us the importance not just of hearing the word, but heeding it, or as Dan made up, shemaing it. Shema means listen and obey, remember, from last week. So there, Jesus was teaching. In our text this morning, we'll see him perform some more miracles, amazing miracles. And the connection between the two, and in many of these scenes throughout Luke and the Gospels, is why we should heed, why should we heed Jesus' words, what he's just said in the parable of the soils, because he's the sovereign of the universe, sovereign over storms and spirits. So the sermon this morning, we'll look at these two scenes. Just as we see them in our Bibles, split up by paragraphs, Jesus is sovereign over storms, verses 22 through 25, and Jesus is sovereign over spirits, verses 26 through 39. So first, let's look at the storm. Jesus and his disciples get onto a boat, and he says to them in verse 22, let us go across to the other side of the lake. This is a reference to the Sea of Galilee as we know it, but Luke in his precision reminds us that it's not actually a sea. It's actually just a pretty small lake. It's only eight miles wide and 13 miles long, and 
Interestingly, it's the second lowest lake in the world, second only to the Dead Sea. That's kind of important because its topography made it prone to sudden and violent storms. Happened all the time. So Jesus and the disciples set out, and in verse 23 it says, As they sailed, he, Jesus, fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water, and they were in danger. So Jesus needs a nap. Sometimes there's nothing more spiritual than a power nap. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Thank you. This reminds us of his humanity and his divinity. He was human, so he needed to sleep, but only God can sleep on a boat. And that's coming from a guy who can barely sleep in his own bed. So it seems divine that someone could fall asleep on a boat. And he's napping, this huge storm hits the lake, and notice in verse 23, it says, they were filling with water. Not the boat was filling with water. This is personal, obviously, right? If any of us is on a ship and it's sinking and we're the ones who called in the SOS, we're going to say, we're sinking. We are sinking. Someone come help. They know they are in danger. In fact, they think they're going to die. They believe that their fate is tied to the fate of the boat, but it's not. And that's the lesson they're about to learn, and we can learn it with them. They are connected to Jesus Christ, to King Jesus Christ. He has chosen them to be his disciples, and they're safe with them, with him. The storm will not take any of their lives, and none of them, except for Judas Iscariot, and Jesus knows about him, will ultimately make shipwreck of their faith either. Whatever boat you're on this morning, brothers and sisters, your fate is not tied to it, no matter the size of the storm. The sovereign Jesus Christ has you, and he will take you through that storm. And that's what the disciples are about to find out. So they got to wake him up first. So in verse 24, it says, They went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, We're perishing. We're all going to die. This must have been an incredible storm. Some of these guys were professional fishermen. They had probably been through hundreds of these storms. But maybe this was the most powerful storm they had ever seen. And I'll remind you, though, that they're, they're more focused on the storm, not on who they're with. So, but rightly, they go to Jesus. So the second half of verse 24 says... And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. As we have been seeing in Luke and throughout the whole Bible, when God speaks, it happens. And Jesus is God, so when he speaks, it happens. The first healing Jesus does in the book of Luke, we saw that back in chapter 4, and it start, that scene starts in verse 31. And in verse 32, it says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. He goes on to heal a man with a demon just by speaking. He heals Peter's mother-in-law by speaking. He heals the paralytic by speaking. You're getting the point. A man with a withered hand, a centurion's servant, a widow's dead son, all just by speaking. His word possesses authority. And that's not just what we see in Luke, but from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22. 
So again, he does a miracle. He calms a storm by speaking, technically by rebuking it. That word rebuke there means to charge or to find fault with or to adjudge. Does anyone know what adjudge means? I didn't, so I had to look that word up. It means to condemn someone or something to pay a penalty. This is intense and personal language. He rebukes the storm. His words are strong, and so the storm ceases, and there's calm. This chaotic storm has nothing on King Jesus. So then he responds to his disciples then, where is your faith? And as I said a few weeks ago, how we read Jesus' tone here is important. Is he speaking in a condemning way? Where is your faith? You dum-dums, you idiots, straighten up and fly right. Get it together. Or is it gentle? Where's your faith? Guys, come on. You've seen me do all these things. Come on. I believe that even with his challenging words, he was speaking gently to his disciples. And that's important because how we view his tone here in this scene is probably what we think his tone is with us when our faith is weak. We talked about this a lot on Thursday night. I'm going to bring up my community group a couple times in this sermon. Um, Shameless plug for community groups. We love our group. We're growing so much. We're having such great discussions around the word of God. And our community group's rhythm is to study the upcoming Sunday's sermon text. And uh, Josh led us through and reminded us that Jesus does speak harshly and in a somewhat condemning way in the Gospels. But who does he do that to? Every time, religious leaders, Pharisees, scribes, lawyers. Who is he gentle and loving and gracious with? His disciples, even when he challenges them. Sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors. So I believe, again, he's speaking gently even as he challenged them. Don't you trust me? Haven't you seen enough of who I am? It's an invitation. Come and trust me more. Where is your faith? And the disciples need to reckon with that because of what they just saw him do. And they know that. So we see how they respond in verse 25. They were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? They were afraid and they marveled. We see fear and marveling often in the Bible as people see the work of God or an angel or the angel of the Lord. And we've seen them in these first eight chapters of Luke. But it is only here in this account that fear and marveling are placed side by side. They're terrified and amazed, kind of like we have felt in the middle of a storm if you've been in one. Chase Nation, our worship leader, talked about tornadoes because he's from Oklahoma this week. He's seen some storms. I can think of only two storms in my life that genuinely I have simultaneously felt fear and amazement. One was in Florida on a summer vacation. The storm was on top of us in our hotel, and it was amazing and terrifying. 
Another one was in an airplane in college on the way home from a track meet from really far away out the plane window. I could see a huge storm. I could see above it and below it. I could see lightning going up and going down. And both those storms were amazing and terrifying. But remember, that's how the disciples responded to Jesus, not the storm. They wonder, who is this that even creation obeys him? Throughout the Old Testament, and especially in the Psalms, command over creation is always an attribute of God. It's always an attribute of Yahweh. And more specifically, it's the Psalms say that God is the one who delivers his people from perils in the sea. If you want to do some fun reading, you can read Psalm 65, Psalm 104, Psalm 107. You'll see it there. And these Jewish disciples probably knew their Old Testaments decently well, so they're thinking, who is this God-like man who is sovereign over storms? Because we know who's sovereign over storms. It's God. Luke leaves the question hanging, and so I will, too, for a moment so we can answer what we believe about the man, Jesus Christ. Or maybe you can, here and now. Who, who, who is this that calmed a storm? As Christians, we believe Jesus Christ is God. Please, don't we? I mean, we, we talk about secondary issues that we can disagree on and still celebrate in heaven together. This is not a secondary issue. I, think, I feel like I say this a lot up here. I say it a lot on Wednesday nights with the middle schoolers. There is no gospel and there is good, no good news if Jesus Christ is not God. You needed a perfect, spotless lamb. And if he was just a human being, he had a sinful nature and he could not die for your sins. He's God. So often we hear this passage preached and it's instantly spiritualized. And that's okay Spirituality is good. Christianity speaks of spiritual truths. But so often we go straight to, well, Jesus can calm the storms in our lives. And I'm going to say that here in a minute and throughout. But just I don't want to skip over the, the literal reality of this scene and marvel together. Jesus literally spoke a word and calmed a literal storm. As I have been talking about this passage all week in community group and in our Friday preaching meeting, something has come up that I wasn't here for, but many of you probably remember the tornado that ruined this church building in 2008. I'm learning about it this week as we talk about storms. Apparently, many of you know this, I just learned it this week, it was a mile wide. Imagine if that was a Sunday and you guys are in here and you hear the tornado sirens and you run outside and you see a mile wide tornado coming for this building. But by the way, Jesus Christ is with you and he says, be silent, go away. And the mile wide tornado just fear and marveling. This is God. If he can do this, this is God. And because, now we go spiritual, because he can calm literal storms, he can calm the storms in our lives. Or more likely, it seems to be his thing to take us through the storm. He doesn't always calm it. But he's with us in the boat and saying, we're going to get through. I'll take you through. There may be storms in your life. You may be in one right now. And if you're not, you're going to be someday, I promise. Maybe someday soon. And it may seem like Jesus is sleeping. 
Great news, you're not the only one to feel that way. Again, read the book of Psalms. Why are you sleeping, Lord? Why have you turned your face away? Please wake up. Please help. Shema, Lord. Listen and act for me. He's not sleeping. He's with you. He's with us. By his spirit in us, he sees, he hears, he knows. And he may not calm the storm right now. But A, he promises to see you through it. And B, he has calmed the greatest storm in our lives already. The storm of our sin. And the storm of the wrath of God that was coming for us that we would have rightly deserved was unleashed on King Jesus and he drowned in the storm. In order to put us into an invincible boat that will never ultimately be overcome by any storm. So our fate is tied to him, not to any boat that we feel like we're in right now, because we're in his boat. And one day soon, I said, sorry, one day, maybe soon, hopefully soon, prayerfully soon, that was about to be a really bad misspeak, he will calm every storm. We'll be with him by sight, no longer by faith, in a new heavens and a new earth with shalom, with a perfect calm. One more quick application. Before we look at the next scene, notice how Jesus saved his disciples despite their lack of faith and before he even challenged them for it. In the same way he died for us, he saved us while we were faithless sinners. And knowing that at times, even after repenting and believing, we will act faithless. It's another reminder. It's not about the strength of your faith. It's about the goodness of Jesus Christ and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ to give his life for you and to promise to save you despite your occasional or my occasional or our often lack of faith. So Jesus is sovereign over storms, but what about spirits? What about volitional beings who have the ability or who might have the ability to rebel against his command? He's sovereign over the natural chaos, but what about the supernatural chaos? Let's look at the second scene in verses 26 through 39. I'll summarize the beginning of this scene. Jesus and his disciples sail across the Sea of Galilee to a Gentile region of the Gerasenes. It seems that Jesus has barely gotten out of the boat and a man comes up to him. And in the first few verses and in verse 29, we learn some things about this man, don't we? He's from the city. He has demons with an S. It's plural. And for a long time, he'd walked around naked and homeless and lived among tombs. In verse 29, we learn that he was kept under guard and would be bound with chains and shackles. So it seems like maybe sometimes he wandered his way into the city and they would bind him. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon back into the desert to live among the tombs. No kidding, I believe this is a scene from which horror movies get their ideas. This is pretty terrifying, actually. This is chaotic. We can see how otherworldly the demons caused this man to live. Shameless, homeless, alone, living among death with this scary supernatural strength. 
and he comes up to Jesus, and we read in verses 28 and 29, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. These demons know exactly who Jesus is. He is the son of the most high God, and they fall down. They're not worshiping, but they are falling down, recognizing his sovereignty and his authority over them, begging him not to torment them. That's amazing. Luke is doing something here. A moment ago, the disciples, Jesus' chosen followers, were saying, who is this guy? And, and one scene later, a few lines later, demons answer correctly. They know who he is and what he can do. And we see in verse 31, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. That word uh, abyss, in the Old Testament, it refers to the abode of the dead. And in Luke and other places in the New Testament, it is seen as the place where demons or disobedient spirits are kept. We see in Revelation that they're cast into the lake of fire. That could be the abyss. So these demons know who Jesus is. They know what he can do. But isn't that what Jesus calls his disciples to acknowledge? Yes. But there's a big difference between a demon and a Christian. A demon recognizes who Jesus is and what he can do, and he hates it. He hates it. He doesn't want to submit to it. James 2, 19 says this, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. A Christian, though imperfectly, joyfully and worshipfully submits to Jesus as king and acknowledges his sovereign rule. So after the demons declare who Jesus is, Jesus responds to them in verse 30. And says, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legions, legion, for many demons had entered him. Again, that's terrifying. Legion is a military word. It refers to a large group. In my research, I found that some people think it means between 1,000 and 6,000 demons. And most of the research I found, most people say it's 6,000. It's specific but I don't think we necessarily need to speculate how many demons were in this man. The point is a lot, thousands. And the military terminology shows that the battle is on. It's Jesus versus a few thousand. It's one against many. Can Jesus win? Or does his authority only go so far? We know what happens, and we know from reading the Old Testament that God likes when the odds are stacked against him. And actually, when we read the Old Testament, usually he makes sure that the odds are stacked against him because he gets the glory and no one else. So the demons beg Jesus to let them enter some pigs, and he gives them permission. So they, they come out of the man, they enter the pigs, and they rush down a, a steep bank and drown. There's so many questions, right, that come to our minds. Like, what all does that mean? There's so much speculation that could happen from that little scene, and we could get lost in the weeds. 
So uh, I'm going to share just a quick opinion. That's all it is, just an opinion. You don't have to totally take it, and we're going we're gonna to move on. Maybe, though, their demon commander has told them, your only job is to steal, kill, and destroy. Don't come back to me unless you've stolen something, killed something, or destroyed something. And they've been, probably been doing that in this demon-possessed man, but King Jesus is telling them to go out. And so like, well, the least we can do is maybe kill some pigs. Maybe that's going to make the people mad at Jesus. I'm not saying they're omniscient. They don't know everything like God. But maybe their goal is to steal, kill, and destroy something. So if they can't do that, continue to do that through this human, they're going to do it in the pigs. Take that or leave that. Whether or not it was their goal to kill the pigs in order to make the people and the herdsmen frustrated at Jesus, we don't know, but that's what happens. But let me offer one other quick lesson on the importance of human beings over many animals. And this is like really going to fly in the face of our culture, and uh, I don't care. There's two boats. Let's pretend there's two boats, and on one boat... There's a, a 90-year-old person, and it might be politically incorrect, but let's say this 90-year-old person is a paraplegic or a quadriplegic or has Down syndrome or something like that. And on this boat, there are 30 of the last species on earth, 30 of them, male and female. And they're the last two. They're very, uh, not extinct, what's the word? Endangered. As a Christian... 11 times out of 10, if you can only save one boat, you save the boat with the human being on it every time. Every time. I don't care if they're that old and they only have a few years left and the world says, well, they have Down syndrome or they're a quadriplegic or a paraplegic. These 30 animals who we're never going to see again can die. I'm saving the human. And I want to continue this soapbox and talk about the bill from a couple years ago when I was the intern at the crossing, we were voting for gray wolves or we were voting for the unborn. And guess what won? The gray wolves. Not for us, though. We choose life every time, 11 times out of 10. So it's a bummer that the pigs died. But don't forget about the demon-possessed man that just had his life given back to him. So verses 34 through 37, we see a reaction. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. What a bummer for the herdsmen and the people of the city. What a bummer. What a missed opportunity. What a lesson for us. They see his authority and sovereignty, and like the demons, they want nothing to do with it. And what a gift for the formerly possessed man. Jesus completely calmed the chaos of his existence. One commentator says it like this. We see a complete reversal of the previously possessed man's demeanor. He is now clothed, whereas before he had been naked. He's now seated, whereas before he had been roaming. He's now associating with others as he sits at Jesus' feet, 
Whereas before he sought solitude, he is now of sound mind. Whereas before he had been crying out in a loud voice, he is now comfortable in the presence of Jesus, whereas before he wanted nothing to do with him. The people in this region reacted in in fear of his authority and sovereignty. Is it because of what they saw? Or is it because he potentially ruined their livelihood? Maybe it's both. So they asked him to leave, and he did. I wonder if that might be any of you in here. Maybe you've seen the authority and the sovereignty of God, maybe amongst us at Windsor Community Church, but you want nothing to do with him for fear of what he can do, or is it fear of what he might call you to? You've heard the Dietrich Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote when God calls a man, he bids him come and die, and that's too scary to, to leave, maybe leave a vocation and follow him into something else. I would remind you of something I said a few weeks ago. His authority is clothed in compassion. He's not just all-powerful. He's good. He's loving. He's kind. He's gentle and lowly. His yoke is easy, and his burden is light. I get that you might be afraid to submit to an evil authority, rightly so. All authority Without goodness and kindness and gentleness is a horrible thing. We've seen it in Hitler and Mussolini and many others. And goodness and kindness and gentleness without any authority and sovereignty is a helpless person who feels bad for you, but can't do anything for you. But King Jesus is both. And he ultimately used his authority and sovereignty to die on a cross for sinners. So that's you this morning and you haven't repented and believed and joyfully and worshipfully submitted to his authority and sovereignty, I encourage you to do so. The Bible says you will be saved. You'll be saved from the storm of the wrath of God that you rightly deserve, as I have been, as every other Christian in here has been who has repented and believed. For those of you in here who are Christians, you know that. You know that he has all authority and he's all good. And you have reacted like the formerly possessed man. I want to be with you, Jesus. There's nothing else I want more than just to be with you. He begged Jesus that he might be with him. And Jesus, in his sovereignty, actually says no. But most commentators, I, and I believe that this man was saved. This man was born again. And Jesus said, no, he sent him away. Return to your home. Declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This isn't mean of Jesus or unloving. It's loving of Jesus to use us for his glory. And he wants this man to go and testify to everyone in his hometown what God has done for him. Certainly he had a reputation. Everyone knew that's the demon-possessed guy. And so to go back and to show himself and how he's been healed would have been an amazing testimony. God will call some of us to to leave our hometowns to testify him and some of us to stay at home and to testify to him. So Jesus tells him to go and to declare how much God has done for you. Did you see that? And then Luke says that he went away declaring how much Jesus had done for him. Luke is reminding us, 
just in case we missed it, Jesus is God. He's sovereign over storms and spirits. So considering these scenes together, we could say that Jesus' authority, Jesus' sovereignty can calm the chaos of living in a fallen world. And we, as his people, can experience calm amidst the chaos of our lives when we trust in our sovereign Savior. We studied this on Thursday night as a community group. And a little context for this story. We, Audrey and I moved here a year and a half ago to come be a part of this church. And we've loved it. But there's something in the air in Weld County that ruins our cars. We've spent more money repairing our cars in the last year and a half than like the last 10 years combined. And if it wasn't for Mike Mansfield, we'd be like bankrupt right now because he's helped us so much. But we study this passage Thursday night. Our hearts are, 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 maybe I should say, our brains are full and we're feeling really good. This is, and God is sovereign over every storm. Lose power steering, pull over the car, it breaks down. Brand new, well, not brand, brand new car to us. Grandma gave it to us when she passed away. We're like, yes, a better car than the other one. It's a Ford, so we, we, shouldn't, have, we shouldn't have made the trade. Sorry. No offense. So we try again, turn the car on, we get 100 more yards. Boom, 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 lose power steering, pull over. And Audrey and I just look at each other and we're like, okay. So we just had this great Bible study about the sovereignty of God in storms. We believe that, right? We just had that we, we preach to each other. Are we going to apply it? Are we going to apply what we just talked about? And by God's grace, I think we did because we were really overwhelmed. We had to like pay all this money to get a tow truck and bring, bring it to the place, and we don't even know how much it's going to cost. And yet, as I've been sitting in this, I'm like, Do, is it here? Or, or is it going to sink to here and to here and to here? Are we going to walk this out? It was a sweet lesson for us. It really was. Because often it stays here, right? And my hope for you guys, my, really, my hope and my prayer is that God would do the same for all of you. He'd give you an opportunity, even here and now, not just to hear his word, but to heed it, to love it, and to live it. I don't want you guys to hear this sermon and think, wow, that was a decent theological lecture. More knowledge has been gained, but that it would become a doctrine to cherish and to love and to live out. We live in a sinful and chaotic world. We will experience it from the outside and from within. Money or marriage, cancer or criticism, anger or anxiety, everyone without exception will experience the chaos of living in a fallen and sinful world. But over it stands a sovereign God who works all things together for our good and for his glory. A God that turns every sword that would be used against us into a scepter of victory in our hands. And someday, shalom. A God who even, don't throw anything at me, I'm going to show you the depth of my belief in this sovereign God. A God who even sometimes may ordain the storm. Not just allow it, but ordain it. Because he knows a smooth sea never made a skilled sailor. And an easy life never made a worshipful, fruitful Christian. So dear saints, trust in your sovereign Savior. He can give you calm amidst the chaos. Even if he doesn't calm the storm, you will get through and he can calm the storm in your heart. 
His arm is never shortened. His hand is never weakened. He never sleeps. There is nothing. There is no thing that he can't control. Let's pray. God, do it in us, I pray. I acknowledge how, uh, how far I fall short in living out the belief of your sovereignty and trusting you in the storms. And I pray that uh, you would just do a great work in our hearts this morning as we trust you and your goodness and your kindness and your sovereignty over all things. We acknowledge it and pray that you'd help us really live it out. That... Uh, we would know that you're in control and you're with us and you're not sleeping and you're doing amazing things and good things in us that we wouldn't want to change. We love you, Lord, and pray that you continue to use us for your glory, especially as we trust you through the storms. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.